You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. Great to see you, church. Aren't you encouraged by baptisms? Encouraged what the Lord is doing? Encouraged for being in baptisms next service as well? And as we said, baptisms next week too, and maybe the week after that, and possibly even the week after that. We'll keep going until they run out, all right? So that's encouraging. Awesome. Amen. 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 Yeah, I'm getting so tired of clapping for things like sports and entertainment figures, and we got to clap for, for Jesus, man. We got to clap for Jesus. He's the whole reason that we exist. Amen. You want to clap again, church? All right, that's good. That's good. Amen. Amen. That is awesome. Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of John. And uh, with that, we begin a new series. A series you can see here behind me, beside me, that you may believe that you may believe. The seven signs in the Gospel of John, excited about this, excited for the weeks to come, excited for today, that you may believe, stated in Scripture, the seven signs in the Gospel of John, there are seven distinct signs or miracles that are listed in John's Gospel. These signs are an integral part of John's Gospel as well. And these signs that are listed there directly and specifically They are intended by the Holy Spirit to be signs from God to prove that Jesus is Messiah, that Jesus is the very Son of God. The word sign in the Greek is the word semea. The word is used in some form in each miracle account to let us know again that these miracles or signs are here with purpose and again with intent. John's Gospel is really, it's like a a legal brief. It is dedicated to provide evidence as to why we should believe as Jesus Christ as Savior. So as we get into this new series, Lord willing, seven weeks, of course, taking us right to the weekend before Christmas. Hard to believe, isn't it? But what is the significance of a sign in Scripture? Signs were used in the Old Testament to authenticate God's people, right? A sign was given by God to let the people know that God is with them. God is saying, I am dwelling amongst my people. You better be careful. You better be wise. You better be observant because the Lord is sending a sign that he is working. Probably the most famous or familiar sign in all Scripture will be the ten plagues or signs given through Moses towards Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Ten signs given by the Lord Almighty Yahweh to say, I mean, take me seriously. I'm working and I am for my people. I am working in the midst of my people. Signs given by God. So signs were used, again, to prove and authenticate that God is with his people. Know this about signs in Scripture. A sign always points to a deeper truth than what is happening within the sign itself. I'll say it again. Signs are always used to point to a deeper truth than the sign itself. And as we come to John chapters 1 through 11 which is commonly referred to by many theologians and scholars as the book of signs. So in chapters 1 to 11, seven miracles, seven signs are there, and they are seeking to reveal the glory, again, of Jesus Christ. So the miracles always point to Messiah, and the signs are always pointing us to the Savior of the world, whose name is Jesus Christ. 
Now, the Gospel of John is unique to the other Gospels. Of course, the other Gospels being Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called the Synoptic Gospels. The Gospel of John, though, is unique. It's unique as to what John leaves out that are in the other Gospels, but it's also unique as to what the Gospel of John includes, the portions of Scripture that are only found in John's Gospel. And part of what is only found in the Gospel of John are these direct references to these seven miracles being labeled as signs pointing to Christ. The seven signs serve to prove what? The glory of Christ, the person of Christ, the message of Christ, and therefore the divinity of Christ being the Son of God. The seven signs in the Gospel of John, again labeled as such, also seem to indicate that they are directly linked together with design. All the miracles, again, that John could have listed in John's Gospel, right? And we'll see in just a couple of moments the so many signs that Jesus did. But there's seven that are recorded in John's Gospel here. And it tells us, it's interesting, in chapter 11, the signs end, and that moves on to the upper room discourse and the passion week of Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit's doing a lot here, and I'm excited for now and the next seven weeks, Lord willing, what he's going to reveal to us. Just by way of summary and purpose, in John 20, look what it says now. So some of these terms start to pop now to us. Now all of a sudden they have more meaning and more clarity. Now Jesus did many other signs, and now that word all of a sudden again has more meaning. In the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, the Gospel of John is written, that you may believe. The purpose of these signs, that you may believe what? Believe Jesus is the Christ, Messiah, anointed one, sent from God, the Son of God. It's the whole point of God's word. That you may believe in Jesus. He is the Son of God, sent from God, what? That by believing, by faith, not by works, but by leaving in him, you may have life again in his name. So how critical this is. It's interesting, the signs begin with a wedding, and they end with a funeral. But we're going to attend a wedding today in John chapter 2, verse 1. I'll put on the glasses. You guys can look at God's word, all right? John chapter 2, verse 1, notice. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus, no, she's not called Mary, but the mother of Jesus. We'll explain that in a second. When the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Notice he calls her woman. My hour has not yet come. His mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there, that's interesting, for the Jewish rites of purification. That's also interesting. Each holding 20 or 30 gallons. I find that interesting too. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. I also find that interesting. And he said, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine... And did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you 
have kept the good wine until now. The NAV says you've kept the best wine until now. Look at verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, ready? And manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. I want you to look at verse 11, the last one we just read. Look at verse 11 again. Could notice here. It tells us with great clarity the purpose of this first sign. So take a look at God's word there. The purpose of this first sign was to manifest the glory of Jesus Christ. Now notice the account that we just read. Jesus at a wedding. Again, the wine runs out. The wine, of course, the water turned into wine. This was not, though, this miracle is not about making sure people were not thirsty. This is not about satisfying taste buds. This is not even about trying to prevent cultural shame, which was a big deal in this day, as wine would run out. We'll hear about that in a second as well. So what this miracle, the sign is really about, verse 11, was manifesting the glory of Jesus Christ. Listen carefully. Manifesting the glory that all those who believe, they would see. Those who believe would see the glory manifested by Jesus Christ. So this is a fascinating miracle. It's a fascinating sign. And the question we're asking now, how was the glory of Jesus Christ manifested by water turning into wine? Now, I want to just be up front with you too. I've never preached on John 2 in this passage before in my ministry. 20 plus years. Never preached on this before, at least as far as I can remember. And this week was a week of discovery. Like, it was like kid in a candy store, man. Like, I'm looking into this, and I was first perplexed and trying to kind of walk through and say, what's happening here, and why is this here, whatever, and the study, and help from others, and theologians, whatever, and just by the end, I'm like, wow, wow, light bulb, light bulb, light bulb, and I'm excited to share with you, all right? And so I hope you too, maybe you've already known this, but this stuff here, the power of God's word, and the glory of Jesus Christ, and the Bible as one book, and all that's going on here pastor's excited. I hope you're excited, and may the Lord Jesus Christ be so honored today as well. So again, how is this miracle manifesting Christ's glory? Three main reasons. The number one reason is this, through his fulfillment. Jesus is manifesting his glory through his fulfillment. A lot of you are saying, I don't get it. I understand. Let's keep walking together, okay? Now, this miracle can be simply viewed as Jesus trying to prevent the cultural shame of wedding hosts running out of wine. Because in the first century, in the Jewish culture, in this way, culturally speaking, to run out of wine at a wedding was a disaster. It did result in deep shame, like deep shame, to the point that history alludes to the fact and even documents that if you were hosting a wedding in this day and you ran out of wine, you could receive fines as a result and even some historical documents say a lawsuit. Okay? Makes you think twice about throwing a party, doesn't it? Right? But this is, this is what they were facing at this time. These were the consequences of what was there. So this may help us understand why Mary, not called Mary, but Mary the mother of Jesus was so concerned. It's likely that Mary was connected to the family uh, holding this wedding because she was very concerned and she wanted Jesus to do something out of it. So we need to know running out of wine was a huge problem and a great shameful disaster in many ways. However, again, the glory of Jesus was manifested, but it had to be more than just trying to avoid a single family from avoiding embarrassment. Right? It had to be more than that. There has to be more here going on 
than just, again, trying to help people be saved from cultural shame. And there is more going on than that. Verse 4 is of great interest to us. So after Jesus' mother goes up to him and says, they have run out of wine. Look at verse 4. This is fascinating. Jesus responds with, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour um, has not yet come. Now, the response of Jesus here seems harsh as we read it. It wasn't harsh, but it was a polite rebuke of sorts. There was a corrective here that Jesus is using with his own mother. Again, a polite rebuke of sorts. Mary approaches Jesus with a kind of expectation. However, Jesus clearly indicates, and this is what's happening here when he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Jesus indicates, I am not here to serve the will of man. See, this is where the purpose of the life of Jesus as Messiah is starting to unfold in small ways, but significant ways as well. His purpose on earth is the very will of God. So he says to her, his mother, what does this have to do with me, right? So in other words, he's saying, listen, I did not come to earth to take orders from humans. I am here to fulfill one's will, my Father who is in heaven. I am here again according to his purpose and his direction alone. When Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus is saying, I am here on a divine mission. I am here with a crystal clear calling from heaven. My resolve, and again, my focus is unparalleled. This is proven when he says, my hour has not yet come. Now notice there, when he says that, my hour, that phrase, the hour, is one of several references that will occur in John's gospel. And when Jesus speaks of his hour, that's specifically as referencing his death on the cross. It's the reason he came, church. We know that. His hour, he was born. He, born, he was born to die a death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. This is why the Messiah came. This is why Christmas occurred. This is why it's the glory again of Easter weekend. His hour is his death on the cross. His hour then is his time. His hour is God's plan for salvation. His hour then is the fulfillment of being the promised Messiah to save the world from their sins. And in this sign where he's turning water into wine, this is the glory of Messiah that is starting to shine forth. Again, as John 1 verse 14 says, and the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus says to His mother, woman, what does it have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. Verse 5 is very interesting, isn't it? Look at verse 5. His mother said to His servants, do whatever he tells you, again, some insights I received again for the first time this week looking at that. I was pretty excited about it. It's interesting. Mary approaches as the mother of Jesus, and she is reproached. But notice, she responds to what Jesus says as a believer, and her faith is honored. So I'm going to say that again. Mary approaches Jesus, again, as his mother, and she is gently reproached, but then she responds by saying, do whatever he tells you. She responds as a believer, 
And her faith is honored as we see as we go through this first sign and this miracle. I want you to see this too. A little bit of insight, but I can't move on without saying it. Notice here, Jesus is creating distance between himself and his mother. Right? Calls her woman in this text, her mother, his mother, his mother. Right? He's creating distance between him and Mary. Why? 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 Mary nursed Christ at her breast. Mary raised Jesus from zero to 30. I mean, all this time and all this obscurity, there is Jesus. But Jesus has come not to be, again, the child of Mary. Jesus has come to fulfill the purpose of the Father. He's creating distance because Mary, like every other human being who ever lived, Mary must ultimately approach Jesus as a sinner in need of a Savior, just like you and me. And Jesus is drawing the line right now to say, listen, listen, I have come as the Son of God, and you yourself must come to these terms too, that you need my salvation as much as anyone who's ever lived. Fascinating to me. And even here, even these subtle phrases, woman, and my time has not come, or I have not come, and even what's have to do with me, all these things are indicating, again, the purposes of Christ as Messiah on earth, and Mary will come along, and she will understand as time goes to just what exactly is happening. God's Word's amazing, isn't it? Just awesome to see. So, we see here, again, Jesus is manifesting his glory by indicating his purpose is his fulfillment as Messiah, as Savior of the world here on earth. Not all would see, but those who believe would, even in this context. Number two, he manifests his glory through his new order. Through his new order. Some of you are like, huh? Well, let's read verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And Jesus said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. So we have questions as we read these verses, right? Read these verses like me, you're like six stone water jars. Why are they there? It says the Jewish rites of purification. Why is that there? It says each were holding 20 to 30 gallons. Why is that there? And they filled them to the brim. Why, why is that detail there? Why are all these things here? They're at a wedding, and why is this included? There's never a word wasted in Scripture. The answer is, it's because there's something much greater happening here than having happy wedding guests. Something much greater than that. And the purpose of the sign is to manifest the glory of Jesus Christ. Well, we ask, but how now then? How is this happening? The stone jars, notice, the text tells us, don't have to guess, they were used for the Jewish rites of purification. And that was used for an external ceremonial washing in the pharisaical sense again of the Jewish people. But this is the old way, church. This is the old way. And Jesus has come to establish a whole new way. Right here, when the wine runs out, this is a symbol that the old way is now done. With the arrival of Jesus Christ, he has come to establish the beginning of the new way, the new covenant that leads to new life. Notice the reference to these jars being filled to the brim in verse 7. So much here. Listen, let me just... Explain for look at how um, listen how Don Carson explains this theological profound theological insight on the screen for you. Here's what Don Carson says about this. He says, "Up to this time, the servants had drawn water to fill the vessels used for ceremonial washing." The lengthy quote. I want you to see. So I want to read slowly too. Notice, 
Now they are to draw for the feast that symbolizes the messianic banquet. Awesome. Filling jars with such large capacity to the brim then indicates that the time for ceremonial purification has been completely fulfilled and the new order symbolized by the wine could not be drawn from jars so intimately connected with merely ceremonial purification. So what's happening here, what we're seeing here, the glory of Jesus Christ begins to shine forth as a new way has arrived. The old wine has run out. The new wine is now here. This is why in a few chapters from now, Jesus will say in John chapter 10, I have come that they may have life and IV and have it to the full. Jesus Christ has come to pour out grace on all who would believe. Furthermore, wine is often used in the Old Testament to refer to the Messianic age. Fascinating. And of course, the Lord's Supper itself and the symbolism of the wine relating to the blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible's just loaded. It's here in the first sign of Jesus we see the indication that the old has gone and the new has come, 2 Corinthians 5. Jesus Christ being the fulfillment of the promises and the establishment of the new way, the new covenant, and the new life. Furthermore, and there's more, in one chapter from now, John the Baptist will relate to Jesus as being the bridegroom. And here in John chapter 2, Jesus is at a wedding manifesting his glory, foreshadowing him being the bridegroom at the messianic banquet for the glory that will be revealed for all of eternity. Man, it's a lot to take in. It's awesome. And so here we see again, the old wine has run out. The old covenant is now passed away. But the new wine is being filled to the brim, indicating the glory and the grace that has arrived with Jesus Christ. And this wine is the new wine. It is the better wine. This wine is the best wine. Because everything Jesus does is the best. Amen, church? Everything he does is the best. And this takes us to our third and final point. He manifested his glory through his best. He saves the best for last. Look at verse 9 now. So when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine... And did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. When the people have drunk freely, they then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Again, the NIV translates this, You have saved the best until now. And I love that again because Jesus is the best. Jesus is glory. Oh, think, loved ones, everything that Jesus does is the best. Everything that Jesus provides is the best. No one else comes even close. Think again, too, our, our world promises what is best. It always ends up, though, with what is worst. The world promises riches, ends in misery. The world promises purpose, that ends in despair. The world promises pleasure, it ends in loneliness. The word continually, the world promises health, but every single time, you notice every single time, it ends in death. But here in our text, we see the sign and the symbol 
that everything that Jesus offers is beyond compare. It is absolutely life-changing. Jesus is the best. He makes wine. It's the best. It's a symbol, again, that he offers the best there ever is in life and life itself. In a few chapters from now in the Gospel of John, here's what we'll see in John 4. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give to him will never be thirsty again. Imagine you could bottle that up. Like that is also, this is what Jesus offers. He offers water where you will never thirst again. Next slide from John chapter 6, Jesus says this. He says, I am the bread of life. When you feed on Jesus Christ, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. What a promise. No wonder bread can do that for you, all right? It's not going to happen. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never, ever thirst. Jesus is the best. Jesus Christ is the best. He gives life. He is so satisfying, eternally sufficient. One more verse in John's gospel, John 7. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow will flow rivers of living water because Jesus Christ is the best and second place is so far behind. When Jesus turns the water into wine and the master of the feast says, you saved the best for last again, that is true in its historical reality. That was pretty good tasting wine, I'm sure, all right? But it's pointing to that Jesus Christ is the one who offers the very, very best in life. It's so interesting here in this text to get more insight, okay? The master, the master did not know, the text says, and therefore he did not see the glory. The servants knew where it came from, but they could not see. Notice it says the disciples, they saw, they knew, and they believed. And because they believed, then they saw the glory of Jesus Christ. See, we say, our world says, I need to see it to believe it. What the gospel in the Bible says, I need to, again, I need to, I need to, did I say see it to believe it or believe it to see it? The world says, I got to see it to believe it. The Bible says, I need to believe it to see it. And that's what's happening right here. The disciples believed and they see, and then they see the glory of Jesus Christ. Also notice, we haven't mentioned this yet, the six jars containing the 20 to 30 gallons each. So that means there's between somewhere between 120 to 180 gallons of wine that is provided here. What's that? Points to the abundance of Jesus. Jesus is inexhaustible in grace and goodness. In John chapter 1, verse 16, it says, From his fullness, from the fullness of Jesus Christ, we have received grace upon grace. You cannot exhaust the grace of Jesus. You're here right now, no sin too great. No shame too much. No situation too bad. No person too far. There's no one that has sinned too much that the grace of God cannot pour over, drench you, forgive you, and save you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ from his fullness we have seen and received grace upon grace. Jesus manifests his glory through this first sign. And for those who believe, they will see the abundance of what is best. And I love here, as the master of the feast, he says, you save the best for last. Again, what a gospel principle. Church, the best is yet to come. 
Jesus Christ in his gospel, he lived, he died, he rose again, and he is soon to return. And the glory that he manifested in a small way here in John chapter 2 is just a fraction of the glory that will be revealed in the last day. And this is the hope of the Christian life. This is why we live hard now, suffering now, trial now, temptation now, sin now, grief now, pain now, death now, sorrow now. But all of that is groaning for what will be in the glory that we revealed in the coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus is here at a wedding, but this is ultimately pointing to the marriage supper of the Lamb for all true believers in glory and the presence of Jesus Christ himself. This is our hope. It's all wrapped up in his glory. Again, a fraction of the glory that will be revealed to us in the end. What a moment that will be. The glory here the glory to come. I mean, talk about a sign. I want to have some verses to put up as we end this message here. Matthew 24, look at how these words now pop and the meaning all of a sudden comes from the surface and blesses our hearts. Then will appear, second coming of Christ, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. What a day that's going to be. It's happening soon. The sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Most commentators believe they will mourn because they have not believed in Jesus Christ and they know that he is now the Son of God coming to judge the living and the dead. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The glory of Jesus Christ. This is an important one in Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 says this, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, a lot of people are very ashamed of anything to do with God, Jesus Christ, His word in our culture of our day. Notice this, here's what Jesus says, Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Just, just always, always be so aware. We are so concerned what humanity thinks of us. We are so petrified in the fear of man. The moment Jesus Christ returns, the only thing you will ever care about for all of eternity is where you stand in the fear of God and who Jesus Christ is and what he means to you. Just we have to convince ourselves that that reality is coming so very soon. We're ashamed of him, and he says he'll be ashamed of us when he comes in his glory. Next verse, I want you to see this, Romans 8, 18. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory, the glory that is about to be revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Whatever we're going through, again, the glory that is found in Jesus Christ alone. Colossians 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And all God's people said... Amen. That is awesome. That is so awesome. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Notice this. For God who said, light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts. The light of Christ has shone light, knowledge, and glory. The light, knowledge, and glory of God all found in Jesus Christ. You want light, you want knowledge, you want glory. Only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. His glory is unparalleled. Everything here, this first sign, manifesting the glory of Christ. And then a final verse, Revelation 5.12. The throne room of heaven, Jesus Christ, looking as the lamb who was slain, opened up the title deed to the earth. Who is worthy to open the scroll? Only one, Jesus Christ. And all of heaven erupts in worship, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory, and blessing. Jesus Christ, the glory that is about to be revealed. Look at John 2, verse 11 again. Notice. 
This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? That is the invitation and the call today for you to believe that he is the savior of your sins and the deliverer of you from death. This is when you will never die and receive everlasting life. And you too one day soon can be in the baptism tank testifying that I was dead, but Jesus Christ made me alive. I was lost, now I'm found. I was blind. But now, because of Jesus, I see. I see his glory. I live for his glory. I've been saved for his glory. And that would make this the best day of your life. May it be so. Let's pray, church. Let's pray. Father, we love you, Jesus Christ. We love you, Holy Spirit. We love you. Oh, I pray that faith, you are giving faith to see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I pray for the encouragement and joy of your church. Oh, I pray, Lord, for more and more baptisms of men, women, and children exalting Jesus Christ. Again, the sign of God, the Son of God, the glory of God. May it be so. May this season, Lord, I pray. I pray for so much forgiveness in our church. I pray for so much confession, repentance. I pray for prayer. I pray for renewal. God, we ask for revival. Yes, Lord, awaken your church. Awaken your people, Lord. May there be joy just bursting forth and people so alive with love and the Holy Spirit and a passion for Christ. May it be so. Lead us, fill us, use us at this time. Lord, we need you. I pray even now as we sing, joy in our hearts, faith, Lord, being expressed from our lips. It is you. It is you we need. We pray all the glory to Jesus Christ together. In his name, amen.